0: Well, greetings in Jesus' name to everyone this morning. It's good to be in the house of God and worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. I uh, welcome all the visitors. God bless you for uh, joining us today. For a message this morning, I have a very uh, simple title, It's called Obedience of the Faith, and the emphasis this morning will be on obedience. Now, I'm sure you've heard that many, many times, some of the most familiar passages of Scripture talk about obedience. We have preached about it and emphasized it. But it is an ever-present reality and even a battle to not succumb to some of the deceptions and false concepts around obedience. In one of the hymns we sang at the opening, I don't remember the number and it wasn't a song we've sung a lot, one of the newer ones I guess for us. But I noted in one of the lines, it talked about um, giving gifts—the gold of obedience, the frankincense of humility—or something. It you had know, a different term for it. But the picture there, uh, gold and frankincense, would have uh, harkened back to the wise men that came to Christ, who were bearing gifts. And the poet there, in writing that hymn, would have likened that gift of gold to that of obedience. And truly, that would be a, a good picture, a good parallel. Jesus had some very uh, strong things to say about obedience. He said there in his sermon on the mount and toward the end, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, he said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. <clears throat> and doing his will is obeying him. a few verses later he went on to say, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. So the wise will hear his sayings and do them. It's not enough to just hear them. There must be a doing that follows. There's not enough to just claim to follow him and say, Lord, Lord, there has to be an action that follows. I'd like for you to turn to Matthew chapter 21 and we'll read a very short parable there. Jesus again illustrated this point. Matthew 21, verse 28, he said, but what think ye, a certain man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will, I will not. But afterward he repented and went. And he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir, and went not. Whither of them twain did the will of his father? They say unto him, The first. Jesus saith unto them, Verily I say unto you that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and ye believed him not, but the publicans and the harlots believed him, and ye, when ye had seen it, repented not afterward that ye might believe him. Now... (coughs) In this short parable, Jesus illustrated and and demonstrated again that action and obedience is what counts. It's not just the words. Words are good. We love obedient children, or we love the disobedient too, but um, we love when they willingly say yes. Yes, Daddy. Yes, Mama. I'll do that. But that willingness is only the first part. And the second part, then, is actually following through and doing it. Because how great is the disappointment when you find out that they didn't do it at all. And while it's disappointing to hear them say, No, I won't go. I won't do this. And we take disciplinary action I hope but if we find that their heart changes and they go what rejoicing well Jesus was giving this parable to the uh, the chief priests and the elders who had come to him and they would asked him the question by what authority do you do these things see they didn't believe him and, um, and Jesus was challenging them because they knew the oracles of God, they knew their forefathers had received them from the Lord, and they professed to know and follow God. They would have considered themselves foremost in obedience and in compliance with the will of God. But they rejected Christ. And so their obedience was not obedience at all. And Jesus was pointing that out as they were challenging him. And so he, f- he said then that publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. Now they would have thought those folks are the last in line and probably won't make it but they were those who heard and changed their mind and then obeyed. While the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, many of them would have professed to go. Yes, I'll go, but they went not. And Jesus made it clear that in the Father's heart, The action is what counts. In this parable, it seems like both sons really didn't want to go. The first one said so, but then he repented and went. The second one professed to want to go, but in reality he didn't want to go because he decided not to. And so the one who repented and changed his mind was the one who received the blessing. Now it says here, he points them to John, who came in the way of righteousness, and ye believed him not. But the publicans and the harlots believed him. And ye, when ye had seen it, repented not afterward that ye might believe him. He's even pointing to them to the fact that they could change their mind and still go. If they would just consider what John had taught and when they see the publicans and the harlots going they could change their mind and go likewise. But the point is clear that obedience must uh, follow a claim to believe. In fact here, Jesus used the word believing. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness and ye believed him not, but the publicans and harlots believed him, and ye, when ye had seen it, repented not afterward that ye might believe him. What I'd like to touch on this morning It's a bit of a, maybe more of a theological um, message, but touches on some very practical realities. And a bit of a warning against one of the most dangerous heresies of our day. We may not think of it oftentimes in that way, but I believe it is the one that militates the strongest against us. And that is that God expects His children to obey Him. You know we've um, in the past year have had numerous discussions about some practical details uh, of lifestyle and practice And there's a sense in which we, um, while we don't all see everything eye to eye, as we have learned, but are seeking and endeavoring to come to a like-minded understanding, there is something foundational, though, as to why we even discuss these things, is that it matters. It matters to God what we do. And the danger to us is that many in Christendom don't see it that way. They don't see that it matters. That obedience, a practical obedience to the word of God is is required if we claim to follow God. But we're persuaded that it does matter. That God does expect obedience. And so the warning is against that heresy that we can divorce the concept of obedience from the concept of believing or believing in God or believing in Christ and even naming the name of Christ, Lord, Lord, but not doing the will of our Father. The fact that it's out there and actually bombards us on every side we may not think of it often in those terms, but it is so common, it has become almost normal for a separation to be made between what you believe and what you practice in, in the Christian, so-called Christian realm. But we have actually, in all of the history of our church, we have believed and tried to maintain that it does matter and it makes a difference but it is the one thing that in constantly bombarding us there is the temptation for us to get weak and to to question whether it really matters is it that important well, I'd like to just... Um, First of all, I'll give you a little historical background. We look back in history and see that the early church, we can read it there in the book of Acts and through the epistles and so on, that the early church believed and made practical application to the teachings of Jesus. They lived what they believed. In fact, they were called Christians first at Antioch because they were following Christ. And of the disciples, it was said, when they were called before the council and, and so on, they, they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. He had so affected their lives and their practice and their manner of living that they acknowledged and recognized they had been with Jesus. And we say... Yes. Amen. That's what God wants for his believers today. Yes, he does. But there's some practical reality that has to go with that. There has to be a life that lives according to what he taught. It's not enough to just say, Lord, Lord. But hearing his sayings and doing them is wisdom. Wisdom and it establishes our lives upon the rock. The historical perspective is that, while that seemed to be the primary um, belief and focus of the church for several hundred years, there came a time when men began to apostatize and, and there's... I'm really condensing this and not giving a lot of details, uh, but there are a lot to be considered if you read. But the church was persecuted. They were hated, and yet the testimony was that they lived a life separate from the world. They lived for a different purpose. They didn't follow after the ways of the world. They even laid down their lives for what they believed in the in the persecution. But along came Constantine who uh, was an emperor and then professed to follow Christ, but he didn't obey Christ in all things. He did in a few things and he became very tolerant and accepting of Christians. And there was even a, a time when there was Contentions that arose in the Christian church among the bishops. And so he called a council, and this was known ever after as the Council of Nicaea, because that was the city where they gathered, and Constantine himself presided over the assembly. Well, there have been a lot of. Uh, Misunderstandings about what all took place there, and I'm not going to go into all the particulars, but the, one of the major focuses of that council was to determine the uh, nature of Christ, whether he was in fact divine, or whether he had a different nature. And they um, went back and forth and in the proper Greek terms for it, and even came up with a term that wasn't directly found in Scripture. And then after that, they declared, and they came up with this um, this creed, the Nicene Creed, and it declared firmly what they believed. And as we look back at that, we would say and probably agree that the conclusion they came to was biblical and it was it was sound. They came to the right understanding. But the process in getting there was a little strange in that they had an emperor presiding over the meeting. But further, out of that then came a... a uh, denunciation of those who did not adhere to that and called them heretics and began to persecute those who were of a different persuasion. So the church that had once been persecuted now became the persecutor. And this didn't all just happen overnight, it was kind of a gradual shift, but that seemed to be the turning point. So along with that was a bit of a shift away from a a gospel that was lived and practiced to a gospel that first started as a theology. And you had to think right about things. Well, that's true enough. You need to think right about things, but it needs to go much deeper than just theology. It needs to go much deeper than just arguing the fine points and details of how um, the nature of Christ is to be explained and which terms to use and all of that. But there has to be a transformation of a man's character to actually be a part of the kingdom. Well, some years later, not so many years, but a bit of time went by and and a man by the name of Augustine arose, became a very prominent and influential man and some of the things that he taught and said are still influencing us today. Profoundly influencing thought among Christians around the world. And one of the central things is this matter of Obedience being divorced from a true life that lives it. Or, I'm sorry, a, um, a faith that divorces obedience from the theology. And it says, in essence, that as long as you believe right, you're good to go. Well, that affects things as specific as how we live today. What we dress, how we dress, the actions we take, the kind of lifestyle we live, and where there are many Christians that say, "Well, it doesn't really matter that much," and they like to label obedience as simply um, tradition, or or maybe even trying to uh, earn your salvation by works. Well, that's not, uh, that's not true obedience. True obedience isn't attempting to obtain our salvation by working our way into favor with God, but we demonstrate that we believe God by obeying him. And Jesus made that very clear. He that loveth me will keep my commandments. Well, that being a bit of the historical background, well, let me finish this yet. (coughs) With Augustine, he came to uh, to teach and and believe that that a man can say things and and believe things, and as long as he believes them, his actions don't necessarily need to follow. And he even came to the place where he taught in what has been known since then as the just war theory. The idea was that even though Christ commanded us not to kill, there are times when there is such evil and we as obedient citizens in a a country and, and in a kingdom and obeying the government which seeks to suppress evil and sometimes needs to do and use war for that purpose. It would be okay for a Christian to participate in that as long as it was a, a just war. Now, Augustine perhaps wasn't the first to suggest those things, and he I'm not sure that he was even the one who coined that term, but what he did teach has since been known by that Idea of the just war and is still believed in its basic essence by many today who profess Christ. It's okay to participate in war, even though Jesus said, uh, you know, that we should not return evil for evil. But uh, through a lot of theological gymnastics, they arrive at the concept that it's okay for a Christian to go to war. Well, a lot of that theology could be credited to Augustine. So it's been with us for thousands of years. However, historically, not all of the church succumbed to his teachings. It seemed there was always a remnant who rejected that and Strove to maintain a simple obedience to the words of Christ. And you can read much of that history in Martyr's Mirror. But you may ask so, how does that affect us today? I'd like to give just several examples. The first one is um, I was reading or rereading the book. It's Not Your Business by Gary Miller. And he actually refers to this in the context of of, uh, business and how our business is operated in light of Jesus' teaching and not just how we operate a business but also how we look at money and all that. And he, he addresses this very thing of the conflict between the teachings of Jesus and even common business practices today. And while I'm not necessarily focusing on finances, I'm using this as an example of one area where we need to be concerned, first of all, about obedience to Christ, not whether it's a common business practice, but whether it actually honors and exemplifies our commitment to Christ. But in addressing this dilemma, he says, um, what's the solution? Well, here's what Augustine did. Just separate a man's obedience to God from his standing with him. Men like Augustine taught that what you believed about Jesus, and I'm, I'm quoting here from his book, what you believed about Jesus was much more important than literally living out his teachings. In describing how a man could go to war while still being obedient to Jesus, Augustine said that loving your enemies is not a bodily action, but an inward disposition. In other words, it is acceptable to kill your enemy as long as you are loving him while doing it. And what is going on in the mind is of far greater importance than what you see demonstrated in the life. The fruit of this erroneous Augustinian doctrine lives on today. It isn't uncommon, in fact, one could argue that it has become normal to find a man living in open disobedience to the teachings of Jesus, yet believing he is in good standing with God. But notice how this was done. Theologians didn't alter the fact that God will someday doom many to hell. Neither did they say that God doesn't want holiness. Instead, they manufactured a theology that kept a man out of hell without holiness. Now, through theological gymnastics, a man could be holy before God without living a life holy before men. But, before we are too hard on these theologians, is it possible that we have accomplished a similar feat with regard to to our view of wealth and business. We read the teachings of Jesus regarding money and working with others, and we agree his way is best. We can explain it in Bible study or a sermon, why the path of Jesus is superior. But we get out into the world of business, and suddenly it looks almost impossible to literally apply the teachings of Jesus. We sit in our office chairs and find ourselves in a similar dilemma to that of the church leaders struggling with a territorial church. And there he's bringing in something he had spoken of earlier. Back to the historical context, what they faced in that day is that Constantine had made the church territorial. And Augustine seemed to agree with that to a great extent, meaning that all in a given area were Christian regardless of how you lived your life. Well, here Gary Miller is simply uh, bringing that into um, into focus here as it applies to our finances and the way we think in, about money and how we operate our business. Um, do we have a dilemma of actually following the teachings of Jesus? We can't change the teachings of Jesus, I'm quoting again, and though we won't admit it, we really can't imagine Jesus fitting into our business environment. Yet we have to provide for our families, so we subconsciously separate our business from our spiritual life to make it all work. Well, it's good for us to ponder but the point here is that I'm bringing out here and using this as an example is to remind us that it is of utmost importance that what we actually do and live in this matter of finances and business it needs to comply with the teachings of Jesus it can't be just words if we just use words and deceive ourselves and then do things that are contrary to the teachings of Jesus, where, yeah, we're ruining our testimony. We need to have the utmost integrity and, um, and purpose in what we do. Well, let me give you another example. This. is something I came across in an article on a news site. And the context here is a lady was writing about Halloween, and And in the article she mentioned that she had uh, in her growing up years apparently somewhat of an evangelical background or church going at least and and she had heard much about the evils of Halloween and why Christians don't participate in that and, but in their church they would have what they called uh, some kind of a fall festival or harvest festival or something and and they'd go and uh, dress up and and go around asking for candy and whatever. But now as she's getting older and has her own children and she allows them to go along with the neighborhood children uh, and their trick-and-treat and whatever, and, but she mentioned that she does feel a little guilty. Well, what's the dilemma here? Well, there is a dilemma because Christians have said for many years that you shouldn't be involved in that. And, and then she uh, quotes another writer named Jessica Thompson, whom I don't know, but here's what she wrote. I'm calling to all moms out there to remember for just a couple minutes that your standing before God doesn't change depending on what you do on October 31st. Oh, really? Really? To be honest, it doesn't change no matter what you do any day of the year. Oh, and there you have it. The old Augustinian heresy, that it doesn't matter what you do. And so it comes down to things as simple as involvement in our common everyday things that the world is involved in, such as Halloween. Should we participate or should we not? Well this professing Christian has just thrown out the idea that it even matters. And says that your standing before God doesn't change depending on what you do on October 31st. Well, okay, maybe Halloween isn't the biggest thing around but I believe it matters. It matters to God what choices we make, what we involve ourselves with, and where we're going in life. But out there, the message is it doesn't matter. And that's why this whole thing of our lifestyle discussions is based on a foundational uh, premise that it does matter that obedience to Christ, a, a literal and, and um, earnest obedience to his commandments, does matter. You know, much of the professing Christian world throws aside the veiling. As though it doesn't matter. And they, they will tell you it doesn't matter. Well, that was just an old practice. But in 1 Corinthians 11 is one of the primary teachings of communion. And most professing Christians will keep communion as, as a commandment of the Lord. And, and they, will, they will regard that highly. But the first part of that chapter, 1 Corinthians 11, no, not so much. You see, kind of a, a pick and choose. Well, we need to be convinced that it does matter to God. Yeah, there can be some variations of thought and, and application even, but the underlying issue is it does matter. I just think of some other current, um, current examples we could point to in, in perhaps the secular world. Um... If you followed the news at all concerning the uh, recent appointment of Mr. Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court and the and the political shenanigans that was going on then and the accusations that were leveled against him of some terrible um, immoral behavior. And the secular media, even the liberal and... Uh, And God-hating media were were, uh, sure that this man is completely disqualified for this office because of these terrible things that he was accused of. Well, it turns out that most of it was probably fabricated. Um, But there there was all kinds of moral outrage about this. But I couldn't help but think back that when... um, When this current administration was first uh, voted in and our Vice President, Mike Pence, who openly professes Christ, he let it be known that he had principles that he would follow and one of them was that he would would not spend time uh, alone with another woman without his wife being present, meaning things as simple as going out to lunch. He wouldn't go out to lunch with an associate or, or business or, in this case, government administration. He wouldn't go out with another lady to lunch without his wife being present. But, oh, the mockery that he endured for such a, you know, in their mind, a backwards thing, you know, just so stringent. Well, one can certainly appreciate his is principal on that matter because here they express, these same people express moral outrage when when there's an actual evil committed, but will refuse to acknowledge any effort to avoid those kind of things. But maybe a little closer home in the evangelical church is the, uh, the matter of abortion. That is seen pretty much universally as a great moral evil and is widely and loudly uh, protested against. And that is all true. That is, We agree with that 100%. It is a great evil. It should not be done and sadly there may be some that compromise but for the most part in the evangelical world that is seen as a great evil. But what is the sin that often precedes abortion? Many times, most times probably, not necessarily in every case, but many times the sin of fornication is what precedes the sin of abortion. Now, how does the evangelical church stand on that one? Well, not so much is said. Yes, maybe in some ways they they do lift up a feeble voice, some even compromise, some even openly accept it as just the way life is, and will say very little about that sin. But isn't God concerned about sin? Yes, he's concerned about that sin too, and To the point where he says, among Christians it should not be once named among you as become saints. But now what precedes the sin of fornication? How about not going the way of her house like we heard in the opening message? And where does the evangelical church stand on that? They don't take a stand. In fact, you will most likely hear mockery and even derision for those who would take action to avoid and shield themselves and flee from all uh, fornication, all appearance of evil, to not go the way of her house, to not be simple and just take in everything, to shun the music that is leading in that direction to shun the kind of clothing, the kind of activities and the the whole uh, line of action, if you will, that we take issue with. You see, it's... Our actions are not to be divorced from our theology. If you believe that abortion is wrong, you need to believe that Fornication is wrong and you need to heed the biblical warnings against the actions that lead up to that. Don't go that way. Don't go the way of our house. And so we lift up a standard. I trust by God's grace that we can see the principles behind the things that we live and believe and practice. The danger that we face many times is not so much an outward assault against our faith as it is the derision that we might hear from other believers for the simple obedience and literal and practical obedience to the things of God. To say that we don't divorce our theology from our actions. We intend to give a practical obedience to the faith. And it's not just the big things in life, it's the little things. It's, it's all the details. It's, um, we can't just sort out certain parts of our life where we want, well, yeah, we'll follow God in this, but over here it's not so, not so much as... Gary Miller challenged in the matter of finances, business and so on. Obedience to the faith. That's where we want to stand is believing that God expects a practical obedience to His commandments and we need to we need to endeavor to follow that. If we say we're going to go work in his vineyard, then let's go and work in the vineyard. If we have in the past said no, we won't go, then let's repent and go work. But there needs to be an action, there needs to be a life that follows what we profess. May the Lord bless you with that.